<laughs> well, my voice was super sexy yesterday. Now it's just like hacking cough. This is Taylor Glenn. A comedian, writer, and flailing mother based in London. Taylor has made several appearances on my BBC Radio 4 show, The Digital Human, because not only is she an entertaining and hugely insightful interviewee, but she has an amazing story to tell. Today on The Resilient, we are going to hear how to survive when getting what you wish for turns into the worst thing in the world. This is The Resilient from flowerapp.com. start with a little background. Taylor's entry into the world of show business wasn't very straightforward. She originally trained as a psychotherapist in New York City. But after working that circuit... Because New York is, of course, where everyone has at least one psychotherapist, if not two or three. She decided she needed a break. She jumped on a plane for a quick visit to the UK. And several years, and a husband later, she realized she was totally stuck. I had always done comedy in in New York, um, even while I was training, but mostly focused on improv and sketch comedy. And there was something about having an ocean between me and everyone I knew that I suddenly felt brave enough to give stand-up a go. Everything just kind of snowballed. I, I Somebody convinced me to enter a stand-up competition, which is... This is a big thing in the UK. Young comics are pitted against one another in a fierce battle to the death. To my complete shock, I won the competition, ended up getting signed with an agent, and chucked in the therapy practice and became a full-time stand-up. And so what followed for Taylor were grueling years on the road, crisscrossing the country in search of her comic voice. As her star began to rise receiving awards and credits and all that kind of stuff. She made a bit of a pilgrimage to British comedy mecca, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. It is the funny sinkhole that spans the month of August. I defy anyone to try to see anything funny anywhere on the planet during that month. I had just finished my first Edinburgh Fringe um, solo show, which was a big deal. So I'd put together this hour-long show, I'd performed it for a month, and it's a really exhausting experience. And she went away with another top gong. Things were going really well, but Taylor wasn't satisfied with her life the way it was. And at the end of that, literally on the drive home from Edinburgh to London, which is a long drive, I just said, I am so sick of myself. Can we make another human? I've got to focus on something other than me. <laughs> I am so tired of my own voice. A baby. Taylor wanted a baby. Now, this wasn't exactly something that came out of the blue. I had been a little bit broody. Well, my friends would say I was a lot broody. That's, you know what, I just caught myself. That, <laughs> that was the sound of a current mother talking. I was a little bit broody. No, I was a lot broody for a couple of years. I was the creepy one at parties who would like grab the newborn and not give it back. And my husband wasn't, so he was the sensible one sort of going, are you sure? Is this really the best time? You know, your career is just taking off. Is this really the best time? And then one day he walked past a toddler wearing like cute, trendy jeans who just grinned up at him and the man was toast. And so she and her husband, Garrett, set about on a new adventure. 
this was the turning point. I think it was an odd time to choose to do it. But then as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was ecstatic. I, apart from feeling, you know, a little bit nauseated with the, <laughs> the usual early symptoms, I felt on top of the world. I thought I'm going to be able to do all of this. This isn't going to slow me down at all. This was a great choice. And then we had our 12-week scan. For those who have not been through the process, this is the first time that expectant parents can see what's going on inside. It's when the first checks happen to find out that everything's developing okay. So there are various tests that happen. You find out when your baby's due. And there's also something called the nuchal fold test. The nuchal fold test. That's the one where they're looking to see how thick the fluid is at the back of the neck. Originally, when I wrote my show, I included this whole bit about getting the scan and I couldn't, I couldn't mine enough comedy from this bit because actually I can kind of look at the fact that other problems developed in me and I feel like this was the catalyst. It was having this really awful experience where I was on top of the world. We were so excited um, and then just having the wind taken out of our sails. So what happened? We went in for the scan and Garrett came along with me and we were so excited. And this woman, just a really efficient NHS employee, was absolutely silent. And at first we were just excited. We saw her moving. We're like, oh, look, she waved at us. And then there was this really uncomfortable feeling that the scan was going on way too long and my heart started to pound and she finally turned to us and said um, that basically the fold measurement was really high. And she hit us with a statistic, which I now realize was so inappropriate. She said, I'd say there's probably a one in four chance there's something seriously wrong with your baby. Holy. I'm not a superstitious person, but I looked at the window and I just said, universe, if you give me a healthy baby... If you can just make everything okay, in return, you can make the first year of her life or two a living nightmare, and I promise I won't complain. <laughs> I laugh at this now. What a prick the universe is if that's how it operates. Like, here you go, you sadistic bastard. <laughs> like, if you give me this one favor, then you can be really mean to me for two years. I think that says more about my psyche than anything. Here was this thing, this precious thing. And she and her husband had eight weeks to live with total uncertainty. Because eight weeks later, that's when they would find out for sure if anything was wrong. Eight weeks. That's two months. I've always been an anxious person. I spend a lot of time in my head worrying about everything. And I think a lot of ways that's what led me into comedy. You know, it's just the ultimate outlet for airing <laughs> the nervousness and the the way anxiety sometimes turns into anger like it's a great platform for that so I absolutely expected some anxiety and I expected I'd have some anxiety as a mother but nothing like what I experienced that scan just flattened me and then I experienced a kind of anxiety that I've never had before we just felt a really childish, I mean, it felt childish, like a real sense of vulnerability. 
and a sense that we wanted somebody to make this all all right for us, you know? And I guess it was my first taste of the real responsibility that comes with parenting, but also the lack of control you can have. So Maisie turned out okay. Their baby, nothing was wrong. But this period, this eight-week period, started Taylor down this, this dark path that she wouldn't escape for more than two years. But even she didn't suspect anything when Maisie was born. You know, we were fumbling and it was ridiculous, but the the first couple months were really great. You know, I, I didn't feel like the sleep deprivation was affecting me yet. <laughs> I was really running on adrenaline and that, that early sense of like, hey, I've got this. This is fine. But it wasn't. I had um, weekend gigs scheduled, so, you know, anticipating I'd be able to willing and able and in the mood to travel and go do a Friday and Saturday night run in another city. And I just hadn't thought through, I, I will she come with me or will I pump and leave her? I just, I hadn't thought through any of those things. The first round was scheduled for four months after the birth. And in my head, that was plenty of time. And for some women it is. But as the date started to creep up on me and I thought, oh my goodness, I have to get on stage and then I was picturing what my set was like. And I'm like, I can't just go up and talk about the stuff I used to talk about it. Actually, I felt like such a different person. The urge to get up and have people listen to me was gone. And that felt weird. But I also noticed that I wasn't laughing at things the way I used to. We'd laugh about the baby and we'd giggle. And I'm sure I watched some movies and TV that must have been funny. But I remember... It was like I had had a lobotomy, but they had removed my my comedy, whatever it's called. <laughs> if there's a part of the brain that's my comedy amygdala was removed. It just felt really weird. This personality dissonance is not unusual. In fact, I remember when I was doing my master's in psychology a long time ago, it was actually something that we were taught. And to be honest, I didn't pay much attention to it at the time because I was a decade off from having my first baby. And unlike Taylor, let's just say I wasn't the broody type. But after my own kid was born and I started to notice myself pushing back against an identity that I really felt had been imposed upon me, I thought about going back to those old articles to really get on top of what was going on inside of my head. Anyway, as the date for the first gig approached, Taylor realized that she just couldn't do it. I just felt like a different person, and that person had no business being up there. So she emailed the club, and she canceled the gig. Taylor's new unreconciled self had to reckon with this awesome shift. But the thing is, is that it wasn't just her life that she was changing. She had commitments, and not just to her job. Everything we had spoken about on that fateful day when we're like, let's go for it, I can balance it all. And he's so proud of what I do. He's been such a support of me doing comedy, and I felt like I was letting him down. Like, I didn't even worry as much about letting me down. It was like, oh, he's going to think I'm such a loser, you know? And 
I'm going to see this disappointment in his eyes. It was almost like I was trying to sell the idea to him. I'm like, I'm just going to take a little break, see? I'm not going to, it's not going to be forever. It's just going to be temporary, see? She said she was making a career shift towards writing. And that was true, you know, because I, I was working on scripts in the background and I did keep up with that and that felt a lot safer. And it still gave me an outlet. So it wasn't like I stopped everything, but it felt really disingenuous to tell myself that. And it still does. And I still explain it to people like that. I'm like, well, I just decided to focus on writing because it was easier for me but it was it was more than that you know it was the emotions behind it driving me it was the fear I was really terrified and the longer I kept it I mean it's classic stuff the more avoidant you are of something the more anxious you get about it so the longer I left it the more it became this huge uh, mountain to climb something that had become very comfortable the time stretched on and on and on. And on. I didn't get back on stage till she was two. So, what happened in those intervening years? Was she totally unprepared for this cosmic identity shift? You know, I'd looked after children so much. I'd been around my sister-in-law and been there, you know, I was in the room when my niece was born. And then I was with her ever since, you know, I was not naive to the ways of motherhood. But when I put the shoes on myself, they did not fit. There's something very public about motherhood, this most personal relationship. Society decides what's acceptable and society decides what isn't. People have opinions. Everybody has advice. I was really laboring under the delusion that a, a good mother had to look a certain way. Suddenly, through the miracle of birth, you are meant to buy things because the spokesperson is a mum. You're meant to behave in a certain way because that's what mums are supposed to do. Oh, to be a good parent, I have got to go to these classes because everybody else is. And you walk into the library or wherever it's being held and it was just so wholesome Everybody's there with tiny kids singing these old-fashioned nursery rhymes, and there was no, there was no room for my old self. There was no room for the cynicism and the sarcasm, and the I just wanted to elbow people and be like, "Get a load of this!" But British nursery rhymes, man. I walked in, and there's this song called "Wind the Bobbin Up" that everybody kept singing. Wind the bobbin up, wind the bobbin up, pull. Oh, clap, clap, clap. And it's just this really tedious song. What I worked out is it's basically about women who are working in a factory sewing. And this is sort of their slave song. This is the sort of like, get on with it and be cheerful while you do it. <laughs> I'm laughing at it. But I just, I would sit there and like be furious about what I was singing. I didn't know the words. So I would just like mouth the words and I would make... Maisie would be asleep on my lap half the time anyway. I'm like forcing her hands to do the motions, just resenting my life. That part of me was just dormant. I mean, I guess that was the part that just felt like I can't get up on stage because I'm just too raw right now. But she was still there in the back going like, this is some bullshit, isn't it? Good moms aren't supposed to say that kind of thing, Taylor. With what felt like the world looking over her shoulder, Taylor felt 
and please pardon the uh, the choice of words, emasculated. The other version of herself wasn't working. That was the one that she imagined she would strap Maisie to her back and they would hitch around Croatia and she would pick up gigs around Europe and she would be free, you know, free. That's not what mums are supposed to do, Taylor. So what happened to that woman who came before the mother that was? She found an outlet. (laughs) Twitter became sort of an unlikely safe space for me. Taylor lived vicariously through the people who posted their moments of pure joy using the hashtag 100 Days of Gratitude. I was watching everybody post about what they were grateful for, and I was so resentful. I was so bitter. And I'm just sitting there covered in vomit, feeling really frumpy, (laughs) wishing that I felt anything like my former self. Cynical Taylor invented her own hashtag, a billion days of parenthood. And that became her voice, screaming out against the mother she felt she was supposed to be. She would tweet extraordinary things, really painful things, honest things about how awful she felt. There were some feelings that were so dark that she had to get rid of them as soon as they were said. The ones I deleted mostly had to do with any fantasies about hurting her or hurting myself, you know, so any references to suicide or thoughts of harming a baby, because obviously those are, you know, those are difficult areas to go into, let alone make a joke about them. But just having it up there for a few minutes was enough to get it off of my chest. I see now in retrospect that I was ignoring some real legitimate symptoms of postnatal depression, and they crept up on me, which I'm sure they do to so many people. I know they do, having spoken to people who have been through it. Um, And I was writing them off as, A, just a normal part of being a parent. Oh, of course I'm down. Of course I feel panicked. Of course I'm resenting her. Of course I feel like I can't move on. Ooh, of course I'm feeling like I don't really want to be here. Of course I'm thinking through the options of how I can escape from this. You know, I just was trying to normalize things that were increasingly dysfunctional and I fell back on an old pattern with me which is I just kept blaming myself so I didn't want to tell anybody about it and so she retreated into herself even more burrowing into this good mother but feeling like a monster I've spent a good chunk of time trying to encourage a reduction of stigma around mental health issues. So it seems kind of funny that someone who's so non-judgmental of others um, was so judgmental of herself. I couldn't separate this idea that it meant I was a failure, that I had really messed this up because I had played my cards wrong. I could accept that it was a disease, a legitimate one, and if I'd sat in front of anyone else going through it, I would have talked them right out of their guilt and right out of their sense of culpability, but I couldn't do it with me. Taylor thinks that's part of the problem, how suppressed the bad feelings need to be. It's not something that friends and family or society at large want to hear. Allow them 
to talk about the negative stuff and not be like happy merry sunshines about it all the time because it's really the pit sometimes it's the hardest job you'll never quit it's really you know the joy comes in pockets but it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and it's a really tedious kind of work so it doesn't help telling somebody who's in the middle of a tedious job to enjoy it enjoy it it's the best thing ever smile cheer up Allow the negativity to be there because when you can vent that, and especially when you can vent the really scary things, and and when I say the scary things, I think there are things that we don't talk about because we've for too long split off into two categories that there are good parents who never have dark thoughts about their children, and then there are monsters who we read about in the news who have taken action. I think the more we get comfortable with accepting that sometimes it gets so bad that you have dark thoughts about escaping or wanting to hurt this thing that is driving you up the wall, I think we'll be in a better place. But it is uncomfortable. I mean, even saying it now, I think, ooh, that's, are we allowed to talk about that? Oh, boy. Good moms don't have bad feelings, Taylor. This is the best time, remember? That was part of why I waited so long to to put a label on it to say yeah I'm I'm more than just struggling here I actually have something that needs to be treated I need help it was because I was afraid that I was going to pull off the good mother mask and everybody would see I was a monster because that's how I felt that's how that's how dark it was and that's how scary my thoughts were and how out of control I felt I f- was afraid I was a monster and now I look back at that and I think, oh, that's so sad. You were so hard on yourself, you know, what a shame. And I, I feel sorry that anyone, you know, goes through that and doesn't speak up soon enough. It is a profound identity shift, the transition between woman and mother. It goes beyond the, oh, you'll be invisible comments that you hear before the baby's born to a total eclipse of the self that you built up until that very point. What Taylor thought she needed to be was the mum who cares about which moist towelettes to buy because speaking as a mother became the division between now and then. And as Taylor found, those who cannot or will not define themselves as first and foremost a mother struggle to find people like them because nobody wants to admit that that's how they feel. Thankfully, for herself and for her family, Taylor found that she was not, in fact, alone. Somebody on the comedy circuit, because a lot of women my age on the circuit were starting to have babies too, she started something brilliant, which was called the Comedy NCT Group. So NCT is an organization in the UK that expectant parents can join before their kids are born to learn what to expect. And what really happens after the classroom part is that everyone rallies around one another after their births. It becomes a kind of surrogate family. Everybody's going through the same thing at the same time. And while Taylor did belong to the official one, it turned out that this group was a better fit. She started this group and had a get-together at her house and all of the women in comedy who were either pregnant or who had, um, had babies recently all got together and that was a game changer. Because suddenly I met my people. You know what I mean? It was like, I just felt like I was in company who understood me, finally. And it gave me the confidence to keep going. 
She was able to find the worldview that she had been looking for. She was connected not just by the fate of having a kid at the same time, but also by the other identity that she shared. The better I started to feel, and the more I was not only, you know, as she was approaching two, um, I was starting to jot notes down again, um, which is how I would get, you know, comedy material together. So I would just write it down in a notebook or I would tap it into my phone. And And she started to notice which of her billion days of parenthood tweets were getting the most love. Her outlet began to be her mind as the cries for help evolved into something that she felt that she could incorporate into who she was becoming. Then I was asked to do a gig that I had done... Um, <laughs> I had done it a couple of years before when I was heavily pregnant and it was one of my favorite gigs that I did. I had such a nice memory of it that I thought maybe, maybe this is the one that can make me feel brave enough because there's such a nice crowd. Taylor asked her friend Dan if he'd do it. Now Dan was the first person who really responded to Billion Days of Parenthood. He said yes. So she said yes. The gig was on. And I was terrified. I had done a few work in progress shows to develop the material, but not nearly enough. I mean, it was really properly 20 minutes of untested material, which you should really never do. (laughs) And it was just taken from notes, just observations I had made um, about parenting. Dan said two things to me after. He grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, that was amazing and you have to do something with this. You have to turn this into a show. And I was like shocked because I was just shell-shocked coming off of the stage. I was so nervous and I had no idea how it had gone. I mean, I could tell that it had gone well, but I was just like, was that really okay? Were they laughing because they feel bad for me? Um, And the second thing he said is, you sound different. Your voice is different. Your tone is completely different than it used to be because we used to gig together a lot. He gave me my first gig ever, actually. And I said, I know it's shaky. I said, it's just me talking. It's me um, being vulnerable up there. But you know what? I kept trying to fit in to situations that maybe weren't the best for me. I felt like I had to be a certain kind of parent. I kept going to a pretty horrible place called Rhyme Time. Rhyme time. Again and again. Rhyme time. If you like it, I'm sorry, but for me, rhyme time, where they sing nursery rhymes at the library or whatever, it's just where adult dreams go to die. Dan wasn't the only person who had feedback. As Taylor continued to work the material from Billion Days of Parenthood, she found something remarkable. You know, every time I do my show... um, Well, not every time, but the good times. People would come up afterwards and just say, thank you so much for telling the truth. And that's a really powerful thing to hear, uh, to think that, oh, it wasn't just my experience. They feel like I'm telling the truth about this experience. To develop her new identity, Taylor had to stop rejecting her vulnerable self and accept it into the rest of her life. I think that for me, motherhood stripped a mask off of me in a way. And I think that the comedy I did before she was born relied on that mask. And after Maisie was born, it was just a total 180. I just felt more vulnerable than I ever had. And I didn't, I didn't feel that sense of 
protection from the mask. And so I think I had to put on something else. You know, I don't think I put the mask back on and I got back up on stage. I think I accepted that maybe if I allowed that fear to just be there, I would do better comedy. It was going to be scarier because it was going to be more personal. It was going to be more vulnerable, but maybe I could reach people in a different way, which without sounding too lofty about it, that sounds so, I was going to reach people. Taylor has taken the show to Edinburgh and has received rave reviews. She has taken the darkest two years of her life and has turned it into pure resilience. You know, I have a recurring dream, a recurring nightmare, I should call it, because it is a nightmare, recurring nightmare that I'm on stage in some kind of production and I haven't learned my lines or I haven't learned the dance steps. And so I look around me at the other people on stage and I try to copy them and just fill in the blanks. That's how that version of me felt for those first two years. I was so insecure in my own abilities that I looked around me for, you know, cues and that led me to be the rhyme time mother. <laughs> and it led me to read certain books and try to look a certain way and try to act a certain way. And I just wasn't being myself because I'd forgotten that she was good enough. And now I guess it's just the worths and all kind of mother. She's not a monster. She's just um, flawed like the rest of us. And she's doing it her own way. And that's fine. This has been The Resilient. It's produced by me, Alex Grotowski, and is mixed by Katie McMurrin. Thank you, of course, to Taylor Glenn. If you love us, please share it. Rate us on iTunes and ping us around. The Resilient is brought to you by flowerapp.com because life happens. <laughs>